People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. You're listening to Fine Music Radio, and this is Rodney Trudgeon introducing you to this week's edition of People of Note. Now, you may know that the Baroque Festival this year has been running for the past couple of weeks, hugely successfully in various venues, and it actually ends today, this Sunday. Um, But it has certainly been a huge success. And one of the concerts that I made it to was down in Nordhook at the home of Bill Robson, who's perhaps best known as a builder of keyboard instruments. But he's also restored what he calls Weltfrieden Ruin, and has turned it into a little concert hall. And that's where we had a concert, and Eric Dippenar demonstrated the four or five organs and harpsichords in Bill's concert hall, which seats about 60 people, I think. And um, it was quite an experience. So, first of all, Bill, welcome to Fine Music Radio. It's good Mm. to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to say to you, there's, and you've even got a pamphlet about the building of this. Was this constable, in fact, what was it? Was it a cottage before, or was it, what was it? It, it, it was a, a Bayverner's house. Bayverner's. Bayverner, oh, yes. Right. yes uh, who, who lived, who built it, we think, in about 1790. Oh, so it's as old as that. Yeah, oh, yes. We date, dated it pretty accurately by two trees on the property that have gone. Uh, one is an enormous blue gum that was about two meters in diameter. Just the stump was left. And this is from memory, but a blue gum that size can be dated very accurately, about 200 years. And this was back in 87, talking about. And then the other was an enormous oak tree next to the the ruin, mm-hmm. which was also enormous. I mean, it was one and a half meters diameter. Oh. These are trees that are 200 years old. So there was a lot of building going on in Nordhoek at that time. And I might be out by 10 or 20 years either way. But 1790-ish is fairly accurate, I think. And so he he built this little cottage for himself and his family. And it was inhabited by successive generations until the early 20th century. Our neighbor, when we arrived in 87, told me that she used to go to school with some of the children who lived in the this, in this, this cottage. cottage yeah. And um, that was the early 20th century. And of interest is that that they went to the local Nordic school, which is gone, unfortunately. It was an 18th century house that's disappeared. But what is of interest is that there were 17 children in this little cottage. <laughs> Good grief. <laughs> and... Um, Seventeen children. Well, when they're standing upright, they don't take. They don't take. <laughs> but Bill, there's a lovely story. I think I read it in your pamphlet about the restoration of this Valtafrid and ruin. That some children were playing, and they found some ruins. They the foundations yes. or something. Yes. Is that what happened? Our children playing in the, amongst the same trees discovered part of the the foundations and the walling of this old cottage, which had been covered up in the mid-20th century when a a huge drainage sloot was dug next Mm -hmm. to it. The soil was thrown on top of the ruin, so preserving it quite well, what was left, because we are convinced it was actually demolished in about 1940 because it had been built of of fired bricks, which was very unusual. 
Mm-hmm. And these were valuable bricks. And they were used then to build a small church not far away, which um, we, we proved because we, we, we compared bricks. Yes. Yeah. Um, Gosh, what a fascinating and, business. And, and, and so the, the, the place was deserted about then. And, and there are various reasons. I, I, I think one of the main ones was that their water supply dried up. Oh, okay. They had a spring. And interestingly, with this very wet winter we've just had, the spring, after 90 years, reappeared. Good gracious and me. After 90 years, 9-0. Yes, it has been dry the whole time <laughs> we've been there. That's 36 <laughs> years. But there it was, right next in the perfect position to be used by the inmates of the cottage. But the, you were able then to decide or to discover what the size of the cottage was because oh, yes. the foundations were there. So you well, just the had walls, to... the walls. The lower yeah. part of the walls were also there. Mm-hmm. They'd gone... They'd demolished it to the point where there were a lot of sun-baked bricks or rocks uh-huh. and left it at that. And there were there were quite a few of the of the valuable fired bricks left, but they, they stopped... Demolishing it about with the walls of about fifty centimeters high, I suppose. But now your house on this, because it's a bit of a small holding, isn't it? This yes, place you've got. Yes, yes. That house has also been there for a very long time, hasn't it? Well, no, not really. Um, not as long as the, the cottage. No, we've now worked out that part of the foundations of our house were part of the original complex. In fact, I'm convinced now that the stable attached to that cottage which is now part of our house the foundations of that stable are also 200 years old wow but it was built with modern materials mm-hmm. in about 1940 oh i see so, okay so our house actually was rebuilt as a, a t-shaped cape dutch house but in fact only one wing was old <laughs> right and perhaps the foundations 200 years old using 1940s-style concrete blocks, because in those days they would never have bothered to restore something with clay bricks, uh, you know, soft, sun-baked clay. They would have wiped them clean and started with modern materials. But now the other interesting thing about the the concert hall, we can now call it the concert hall that you built, this cottage, is not only... I mean, apparently you have regular concerts there. Oh, yes, yes. Um, do people know about it and come in Well, a lot of people do. <laughs> there's, a, there's a mailing list of 400 names on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, a Facebook page now, apparently. Okay, so and are all the concerts, do all the concerts feature your instruments? They, they, they do because my, that's, that's, that's those are my instruments are available. You <laughs> exactly. know? And they're not concerts. This is an interesting point. We, we, uh, they're not formal concerts usually mm-hmm. because what we've done is, and we've done it for many, many years. It started off in the, in the main house, in the forecomer. Um, we have what's called a collegium, which is what the musicians in the 18th century used to do. They, they, sim- they, they didn't do formal concerts of chamber music in those days. They played for the, the, their patron, they played for the church, they played for the town council, but they didn't do formal concerts with a few musicians. That w- was an unknown thing. They, but they did meet in Bach's Collegium in Leipzig. They did meet once a week 
Friday evening at Zimmerman's Coffee House. You know, <laughs> who, Zimmerman had a large harpsichord there, and he sold all sorts of drinks as well as coffee. And so Bach and his friends used to meet there every Friday and play music. And whoever pitched up, they would they would use whatever musicians were available, and people came to listen. And that was a standard. Collegi- collegium idea was standard in the 18th century. And you've century. kind of re, re, we've formed it we, now. We've resurrected, resurrected that idea. It, yeah. So there's no charge. There's no plan. It's off-the-cuff music. And it happens every month on, on the last Sunday of every month. My goodness. At four o'clock. Let's yes. remember that. Okay. Now, Bill, we're going to start talking about your extraordinary skill making these instruments in a moment. But first of all, here is some music that you've chosen. It's the Sinfonia, the opening of the Cantata Number no. 35 by Bach. And apparently this is special to you, this particular piece of music. Yes, yes. We've performed this Cantata um, several times um, in my house at St. Norbert's Church Comarchy and in the, in, at Bishop's in their small chapel mm-hmm. once with th- three different singers, I remember. It's, it's written for, for alto soloist. And it, it, what is uh, wonderful about this particular cantata is it needs a concertate organ. It, it's a it's an important part for organ. It's not just continuum. Do you hear this in the symphony? Oh yes, the symphony. You will hear the organ is very prominent. Okay. Um, and of course, in those days, they used the main organ in the church, mm-hmm. um, but just one or two stops. Yeah. Um, and either they had to transpose to the chamber pitch, or I only learnt fairly recently there was a stop or two on the main organ at the right pitch. Never used with the other stops of the organ, but they used the big organ. But we we had a little chest organ that I made, and I still have, with 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 several stops. It's got four stops, so it's very versatile. And throughout that cantata, the organ features very prominent. Let's listen now to this Sinfonia to the Cantata Number no. Thirty Five by Bach. <laughs> Thank you. 
That's the Sinfonia to the Cantata number no. 35 by Bach, played by the Leonhardt, Gustav Leonhardt Ensemble, and was the first choice of my guest on this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. His name is Bill Robson, and he makes harpsichords and organs. And as I said at the beginning, I was lucky enough to go to recital this past Sunday as part of the Brock Festival to hear Eric Dippenau play on some of these organs. So, Bill, I want to talk about you and your fascination with original ancient organs and first of all just your musical background did you start learning music when you were very young yes um we lived in natal south coast yvongo beach <laughs> oh I, I come from natal so i oh, know that right. very well yes. yes my parents ran a little hotel there interesting that every week my parents had a musical gathering at the hotel and any of the guests who played instruments came along. My mother used to sing and play the piano and she could accompany herself mm-hmm. very, very well. And I remember as as a little boy, four, five years old, that the music every week. And, and um, uh, so that must have been a stimulus because I, I started learning 
um, I went to the local convent at Port Shepston, and I had a, a piano teacher there who wasn't very good at teaching. <laughs> but, <laughs> but she, but she, she didn't put me off. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> and I was, I became passionate about music at an early age, and eventually fairly proficient as a pianist. <laughs> now. The next big and important question is, at what point did you become obsessed with organs and harpsichords, keyboard instruments? That's an interesting question because um, I'd never played a harpsichord of any sort throughout my teenage years. Um, I was at Southampton University and I did electronics there and <coughs> the, I played the oboe <laughs> um, in the orchestra at the university um, and I remember the university acquired a harpsichord at, when I was there. But my first instrument that I owned was when I was 21. My parents foolishly asked me what I would like for my 21st. <laughs> and I said, well, I would like a spinet, please. Oh, a spinet. And the spinet that Eric played on Sunday is the one that they eventually bought for me. They couldn't afford anything new. They They were not very well off at all, my parents. And this came up, a second-hand instrument. It cost 50 pounds, I remember. And it needed work doing on it to get it to work properly. And for my 21st, I had a musical gathering with all my friends from university. And the spinet was the centerpiece. And I got it working enough and somehow managed to tune it so I'd never tuned an <laughs> instrument in my life before, and I knew nothing about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that was the stimulus. Eventually, the, uh, having to to restore that spinet gave me the interest in possibly making instruments. Yes, because you said somewhere that you were bored, and you in some job that you were doing, and you wanted, to, you thought yes. there must be more to life than this. And then you got hold of this book, Three Centuries of Harpsichord Making. Ah, yes. Apparently a famous book by Frank Hubbard. Yep, that, that was a turning point in the harpsichord world. Because Frank Hubbard was, was an expert at languages, particularly, and a musician. Mm -hmm. And he wrote what must be the first ever book written on harpsichord making that is reasonable well, is accurate and and he studied instruments from various countries he he was expert draftsman and he he revolutionized the harpsichord world when mm. when did he live when was that was well it? the book was published in 1965 oh okay and okay. i bought a copy immediately and um that without that book i would be nowhere and so as a result of this book and your spinet, something in your mind said, I want to build harpsichords and then ultimately organs. Yes, it was just by chance. I worked for Plessy UK in England after university doing research, electronics research. Um, and they wanted people for their branch in South Africa, in Cape Town, Plessy, South Africa. And I was tempted then to, to come back to Africa because I was born here, <laughs> Pretoria. Yeah. And 
And so I came back and worked for Plessy, South Africa. I had a wonderful field w- job um, doing a navigation system for False Bay, um, and which involved treks up the mountains of uh, Steenbras and the St. James and lots of days spent out in a little boat <laughs> with uh, checking the pattern of the of the navigation system, which I really adored. I, I, I love the sea. <laughs> oh, well, and you and live near enough anyway. Yes, but, I, but, but <clears throat> that project came to an end and I was stuck in the lab at Plumstead and then I started thinking, this is no good. I, I need a a more exciting job. <laughs> and so I, I resigned. I was living then with my parents who had moved back to South Africa and I had made a little spinet in my spare time just for myself. I still have it. And I thought, I'll finish that spinet and then I will get another job as an electronics engineer. But there was nothing in Cape Town. I would have had to move to Johannesburg and I didn't want to do that, so I hesitated. And then someone ordered a spinet. And then NAPAC ordered a harpsichord to our Performing Arts mm, Council. Yes. And one thing led to another, and I ne- never went back to electronics. And so you made the harpsichord for NAPAC. Yes. And then continued. And I gather yes. the orders have been flowing in ever since. Yes, and I never looked back. I, I just continued as a harpsichord maker. My first little organ was made from a kit of parts in 1972. And that sort of started me. I was always passionate about the organ, particularly, Mm -hmm. and as a player. (laughs) And that started me on organ building. Let's wait before we talk about organs and take another piece of music, first of all. And your second piece, Bill, is another Bach piece from the Cantata number 149, an aria therefrom. Is that right? Yes, yes. Is there a reason you've chosen this? Oh, it's just pure, wonderful Bach. It's it's written for soprano. Of course, it's sung by a boy soprano, and it is very difficult music. As but, Bach is absolutely, it's very difficult. And but this young eleven-year-old, I'm sure it hit sounds effortless, <laughs> and and I, I, I imagine it probably for an 11-year-old who doesn't understand how difficult the music is. <laughs> so they just it, go for it. They just do what they're told and sing the notes. And it's just the most wonderful Bach.
Now, there you are, an 11-year-old singing that aria from the cantata number 149 by Bach. And another choice of my guest on this week's edition of People of Note, whose name is Bill Robson. He builds harpsichords, spinets, and now organs. So you sounded quite passionate about harpsichords and spinets, Bill. How did the organ come into your life? Well, from a pretty early age, I was passionate about the organ for some reason. And I must have been 10 years old at boarding school in Truro. And we had an organ in the chapel there. And I really wanted to be taught how to play this organ. This is what I really... I played the piano then, very enthusiastic pianist I was. <laughs> and I, I, so I was quite competent at the piano. It's very... It's an interesting twist... I also sang in the choir as a boy soprano. We had a wonderful choir at the school. We we did the most wonderful music. I was introduced to all the usual things, Handel's Messiah and Haydn's Creation and so on and so forth. I, I sang it all as a boy soprano, mm-hmm. and I loved it. But what I didn't love was that we had seven practices a week. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> we had two on Sunday. We were let off on Saturdays. But on, but and I didn't need seven practices a week. Um, You're talking about the choir now. The choir. This is yes. choir practice. Yes, yes. I, I could learn the notes quite easily yeah. in, in much less time than that. And, and it irked me terribly. Now, every week we were required to write to our parents a, a letter that was always censored. <laughs> I'm sure it was, yes. You know how it is with these boarding schools, but... I wrote an uncensored midweek letter to my parents in which I complained bitterly about the fact that we had seven practices a week, which I thought excessive. (laughs) And for this, I was hauled up before the headmaster and the music master (laughs) and told off very severely. (laughs) Oh, dear. And so the music master from that moment, who had control of the organ, certainly didn't like me. And refused to teach me the organ as a result. So I was very frustrated, and I only eventually taught myself when I was in early 20s. So that, but I was still passionate about the pipe organ. Now, am I right in saying with all the skill required to build a keyboard instrument like a harpsichord or a spinet, an organ is a different animal, isn't it, because of the bellows, the pipes, the action? It's Quite a different kettle of fish, isn't it, building an organ? So what on earth made you want to build an organ? Well, because I played the instrument. Okay, that's a good Uh, answer. And that's that's (laughs) the only reason. Organs are much more complicated than Mm. harpsichords. But also, all the way through, you make it very clear that your organs are period instruments from the period. They're not modern. They're not touched by electricity. No, no. The, you know, the organ building until the, at least the middle of the 19th century, uh, w- was a, a continuous tradition going back two millennia. Mm-hmm. And then uh, electrics entered the, 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 and pneumatics and so on, mm-hmm. all the, the things of the Industrial Revolution. And they discovered they could instead of having a mechanical connection between key and pipe, (laughs) they could do it with pneumatics or even easier with electricity, with little magnets under each pipe, and then you had to wire it up to a keyboard which had contacts. And they thought 
especially in the early 20th century, this was the most wonderful thing because you could put the keyboards, the console of the organ, anywhere and the pipes anywhere else and just wire them up. Mm-hmm. And what they didn't realize <laughs> was that you cut the essential artistic connection between player and instruments. It's like playing a violin at a distance, which is operated electrically, and and you just press buttons or something like that. Yes, yes. You you can't produce music like that. No. And I mean, an organ, for example, let's talk about Bach now. The organ he used, they speak of a tracker action and things like that. Um, he was right there on the organ with a keyboard, and he was in touch with his music. That's right. Wasn't he? That's right. Tracker action refers to the the so-called trackers, which are the thin pieces of wood that connect the keys to the valves in the wind chest, which let the, the air into the pipes. You can control the way a pipe speaks. You you have there is no delay. It it's it's it speaks as soon as you touch a key. Mm-hmm. With electric action, for various complicated reasons, there's a huge delay. Gosh. There's magne- magnetic and electrical inertia. But with tracker action, it's instant, and and you have this control. You've got to think hard about how you press the keys and how you release the key. <laughs> but you can control everything. You can do phrasing and articulation are just become second nature. Mm-hmm. And Bach, of course, it means also the keyboards are right there next to the pipes. Bill, tell me about the first organ you ever made, which you say you made out of bits and pieces dating back to 200 years ago, the very first organ you built. Oh, well, that's the the first organ that goes back to 1975 when I built myself a little organ which had started as a kit, and I then made different pipes for it. It became the sec- the top manual of my present house organ, and it then the whole organ was built in between orders for clients <laughs> <laughs> for your harpsichords and spinets. For, for other organs as well. Oh, and for organs, I, so, indeed, yeah. I made the first organ I sold was 1977 to Vintuk Municipality. It's still there oh, good. In, in the crematorium chapel. Uh, but but the, my house organ has grown over the years. And um, it is still growing, <laughs> I'm afraid. Is your house organ in the in the chapel, in the yes. concert hall? Yes, that's the organ in the balcony. Oh, oh right, right, yes, right. Which yes. we heard as well that day. Yes, that's right. Just a few stops of it. it mm-hmm. has, uh, yes. But in, I mean, that day we were lucky as part of the Brock Festival because Eric demonstrated not only the harpsichords and the spinet, but the, you had, I think, three organs there that he used. Yes. The one upstairs and then a beautiful one standing which had a lovely bass sound, and then a very curious one with bellows at the back where you had to get someone from the audience to come and pump for you, and which yes. made a sound which I said to <laughs> John Woodland, who was sitting next to me, like a hurdy-gurdy almost. <laughs> <laughs> is that a terrible thing to say? Well, well, it's interesting that, that you're referring to what is called a regal. Oh, okay. And, and, okay. and the one with bellows. Now, now, and, and regals... Were were separate little or portable organs. Yes, it's quite small. That one. Yes. Uh, that well, I saw. they're even smaller ones. Let me oh, tell you, okay. they're ones okay. that are the size 
virtually of the keyboard. Oh. The pipes take up less space than the keys, mm-hmm. almost. And these regals were very popular in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. They, um, Henry VIII, I think, was reputed to own about 30 or 40 of them. <laughs> Good grief. Various sizes, of course. Yes. Very few are left because, because they went out of fashion completely in about the beginning of the 18th century. Yes, because what would you pair them with? Uh, it would have to be a solo, wouldn't it, really? It wouldn't be able to play in an ensemble, surely, with that oh, sound. Oh, yes, they did. No, oh, no. really? No, really? For, for, for Monteverdi and his, his music, oh, really? you really need a regal. And Eric pointed out recently that the sound, that sound of the regal, which is that rich buzz. Mm, it's a buzz. That's right. That's right. Yes. Blends very beautifully with voices, surprisingly. Oh. And even in Bach's early years, a regal was used for choir practice. Um, a very small regal, for, for, for very portable, and you could stand there in front of the choir with this thing. Someone had to pump it, of course. Yeah. But, but, yeah. but, it blends very well, and to 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 lead singers, it's a very useful instrument. But the sound was not uh, in, in favor in, in towards the middle of the eighteenth century. So they went completely out of date. They they discovered one in Germany about ten or twenty years ago in a castle, forgotten completely for three centuries in a room of the castle, untouched. Dating from 1551. Wow. A, a beautiful regal which has been restored mm-hmm. and is remarkable because the, most of the regals that were built just disappeared. Do you get <laughs> orders for regals? Um, that's, uh, <laughs> I haven't yet. <laughs> oh dear. I, I suppose that the, the only one I made which was an organ, which was an order, um, was for Wits University back in 1990, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And that was part of a bigger chest organ, which had ordinary flute pipes and, and a regal stop as well. Okay. okay. Which is, uh, but th- that's the only one I made f- as an And so order. that one standing in your concert hall now is the second one you made. And it's, it's probably, there. probably, yes. It's not because my house organ has a regal stop on oh, it. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. All right. Um, yes. And, yes. Bill, we're going to take another piece of music, a prelude by Bach with Marie-Claire Alain and the Silbermann organ in Freiburg, the cathedral in Freiburg. Is there anything special to listen out for here? Well, j- just that, that she plays an organ built by Silbermann. And the interesting thing is that Bach knew Silbermann personally. Oh, that's interesting. So, so this is a large organ, and it's one of Bach's wonderful preludes, the C major prelude. Um, it it is interesting because this is a sound the Bach would have heard absolutely. Yeah. And yes. let's listen. <laughs>
the prelude in C major by Bach, Marie-Claire Allen there in the Silberman organ in the Freiburg Cathedral. And another choice of my guest, an interesting man called Bill Robson, who lives in Nordhook and who makes organs, harpsichords, spinets. And I was so lucky to hear them on this past Sunday as part of the Brock Festival, which ends today, actually. But the other thing was that Bill took us on a tour of his workshop. And what struck me, and I've read about it as well, Bill, is you even your workshop is not sort of electrified, is it? You've got instruments that your father used to use or grandfather, wooden planes, really natural. Everything's natural. Yes, I, I've made, I was like my great, my grandfather was a joiner and I inherited his tools. And some of which, by the way, date back to when Bach was alive. My Goodness. molding planes and I've used those over the years and at one stage when we lived at Grayton for five years I did all my planing by hand because we had no Eskom and and I did a lot of handwork using some of these old tools that my grandfather had and other old tools that I bought over the years so I do a lot of handwork mm-hmm. but I, I do also now have a few power tools I'm sure <laughs> yes. to make life easy in a sense but now about with the wood where do you get the wood from ah uh, yes I, I most people would buy wood from a timber merchant mm. but that I have done that but most of my wood is bought direct from forestry department I, I bought trees and sometimes never seen the tree <laughs> but, but uh, <laughs> I bought trees from the forestry and then had them re-sawn into planks and then I seasoned them myself and so a lot of woods that are grown in South Africa I've used over the years much cheaper let me tell you than buying wood in from a timber merchant, I'm sure, and and the the tree itself costs very little. You've got to get it transported to the sawmill and then sawn up, and then you've got to season it for years. Mm. I was but going to say it's a long process if it, you're using live trees like it, that. It is, but but it's worthwhile because uh, some of the wood that's grown in South Africa is wonderful. For, and things for, like um, the bellows for an organ, what are, what are they made of? Leather. Well, the leather for it's a very specially tanned sheepskin. For, for leathers that all the leather I've got came from Germany mm-hmm. okay. yes. and things like the keys you also oh, use I've wood I've always made my own keyboards I must have made I don't know how many <laughs> keys and the, <laughs> the strings of the harpsichord for example yes those the little plucking thing those that's an interesting point because until the early 70s uh, we couldn't get real harpsichord wire we could only buy piano steel uh-huh. And, and is it two different things, very oh different? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. yes. Piano steel is rigid and was never used in the 18th century. They couldn't make it. Mm. But but soft iron wire w- was available then from the early 70s for harpsichord makers. And brass, of course, has always been available. So you use those two and various uh, co- alloys of brass as well with more or less copper. Uh, but but harpsichord strings are special. They're, they're, they're different from ordinary wire. Mm-hmm. And, Bill, how do you make the pipes? Oh, the pipes, mostly of wood. Of the organs, yeah. Mostly. Yeah. I make wooden pipes mostly. But right now I'm building a trumpet stop for my house organ, which is a separate little organ, and I'm making the entire 
organ, including the, the metal resonators, which are a lead tin alloy, which I will be making from recycled old organ pipes, which have been uh, thrown away as were well, mm-hmm. bent and <laughs> right. useless. And I've yeah. flattened them out and I, I, I fa- fashioned them into the conical resonators needed for pipes. Now, Trumpet. Bill, you don't you don't build these vast organs, the concert organs, like, for example, the one we have in the city hall. That's not your scene. No, it would be impossible <laughs> right, for yeah. one man <laughs> to do that. Yeah, um, And uh, the other interesting thing is you say that most of your orders are coming from Japan at the moment. Well, no, in the period from 98, when I went to an exhibition in London and met a Japanese bloke, he, between then and 2008, he must have bought 20 of my instruments or more wow. small organs. How long does it take you to build one of these instruments? Oh, it depends on the size. A, a spinet is only two or three months. Um, a, a chest organ can be double that time. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it depends very much on the size. But this chap who is attached to Tokyo University, they had already acquired a spinet of mine which was a copy of an 18th century spinet which I had restored in South Africa and they had this I didn't know they had it and and they they were so impressed with that that he was delighted to meet me and he just went on and on <laughs> ordering instruments he, he hires them throughout Japan and Bill so, we're going to have to stop okay. I'm sorry but it's been fascinating um, with these extraordinary instruments i'm so glad i've seen them as well and to know that your concert hall is open every fourth sunday every last sunday of the month for organ recitals if people want to hear some of these instruments so your last piece now is by bach his arrangement of vivaldi's concerto for four harpsichords is that right yes that's right originally written by vivaldi for four violins and bach got hold of it and wrote it out for four harpsichords. Are you, one quick question, are you, have you got perfect pitch? Oh, no, I, 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 I can tune once I've got a note. Yes, so a reference point. A reference point. Okay. But, but it's, it's, a, it's a big disadvantage nowadays to have perfect pitch because we mostly play Baroque music at the pitch they use. Yes, which is slightly lower. Which is slightly lower. Mm-hmm. And anyone who's used to an A at 440 cycles a second, whatever, finds it difficult to adjust <laughs> to an A, which is a semitone lower, yeah. or even a tone lower. It depends which period yes. you're looking at. Yes. So I I don't have perfect pitch in that respect, but once I've got one note, you can tune, I, I can the, tune the keyboard with yeah. no trouble at all. What gifts you have, Bill? What amazing gifts cool. and your beautiful house in Nordhook. Um, thank you for being so interesting. And we'll end with this piece by Bach, his own arrangement of Vivaldi's Concerto for Four Violins for Four Harpsichords. And my guest has been Bill Robson. Thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure, Rodney.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions.